our Old Testament lesson, Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 42. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked on leavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please turn with me now to our New Testament lesson, Matthew 26, verses 30 through 46. Our New Testament lesson and sermon text, Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. After taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The genre of biblical narrative oftentimes moves very quickly. Over the span of just a few chapters, the biblical authors oftentimes cover many, many years. If you think back to the stories of Abraham, you have Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldees, arriving in Canaan, and then over the course of about 10 chapters or so, you have narrated for you 25 years in Abraham's life. Moses had to be very selective as he then narrated those many, many years. Clearly, he could not tell you everything. It's something similar that Matthew has to do within this gospel. Inside the narrative chapters of Matthew's gospel, during the time of Jesus' public ministry, we see approximately three years covered over the course of 11 chapters. Matthew had to be very selective in what he was telling. And as the Apostle John tells us at the close of his gospel narrative, that if he had told you everything that Jesus had said and done, well, all the books in the world could not have contained it. They had to be very selective, and they had to move with a very rapid pace to tell you the highlights of the public ministry of Jesus. But now... As we come to the close of Matthew's Gospel, we see a very brisk pace slow down immensely. Matthew takes five chapters to tell us about one week in Jesus Christ's life. From Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, Five chapters of narrative. God wants you to understand the details of that final week. Both so you understand what Jesus did for you as your humble substitute, but also that you might take up your cross and follow after him. Let's begin with our first point here. Pride before the stumble. Verses 30 through 35. As we enter into this text, we are reminded that the Passover feast had just ended. 
the custom was to finish it by singing Psalms 116, which we'll sing later in our service, 117, which we just sang, and Psalm 118, which I plan for us to sing next week. Somewhere in between the end of the meal and their arrival at the Mount of Olives, Jesus told them that they would soon be unfaithful to him. Now the ESV translate the, uh, translates this, a falling away. This is not to be understood as a <clears throat> final apostasy. But rather, this is understood to be a very serious sin, a departure from Jesus. Basically, what would, be happen, what would happen here, they would stumble so seriously that they would become embarrassed of following Jesus, of being his disciples. We should be understanding here. It's a dangerous business to be joined to a political loser as they would soon be joined to. But as we've seen thus far already in Matthew, his arrival in Jerusalem and all the things that are about to happen to Jesus, they are according to God's plan. It doesn't matter if it's the betrayal, the falling away of the disciples, the coming crucifixion, all of it is according to God's plan. The eleven would certainly be unfaithful. However, Human responsibility and divine sovereignty are not at odds. They are compatible. In Zechariah 13, God predicted, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quotes this in verse 31 to warn the eleven that they would soon sin during the coming crisis. Now, as an aside... I think that the context of Zechariah 13, which Jesus quotes there in verse 31, is fascinating. Zechariah had been speaking about the Messianic age. He had been speaking about the restoration of Jerusalem. God pouring out grace and mercy upon his people. God creating a fountain of cleansing for his entire nation. And then juxtaposed with that saving, beautiful message, you have that verse. I will strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. Consider that. The juxtaposition of salvation for God's people and the striking of the shepherd. He goes on to say that the sheep would be scattered, all of them, speaking about all of Israel, and that only one-third would return to the shepherd and return to God. The other two-thirds would be driven away forever. Speaking surely about the house of Israel, a two-thirds departing from God in Christ. However, one-third, including the apostles and many other believing Jews, would return and receive the benefits of his salvation. Even though Jesus was here quoting scripture to the disciples and telling them that their sin was part of God's sovereign plan, in characteristic fashion, they decide not to listen. Right? Peter especially decides, even though that's in the Bible, even though you're telling me that, Jesus, it ain't going to happen 
Definitely not to me. It's really shocking what he says. He looks down his nose at the other ten disciples that are left. He looks down upon them and says, even if they all fall away, not me, not this guy. What's an example of pride coming before a great stumble? It didn't matter to Peter that the Bible said that or that Jesus said that. He was better than all that. He will be just fine, thank you very much. He was strong. He knew better. Jesus replies that actually Peter's sin would be the worst of the eleven. He would not merely abandon Jesus, but he would explicitly deny him. And he would not do this just once, but three times. This would not happen after a long delay, like a few weeks out, but in just a couple of hours. Immediately after he had declared himself to be so strong, he would deny that he even knew Jesus. The reason that we know it's going to be in just a couple of hours is that it was already nighttime, and this is interesting, roosters in Jerusalem at this time were known to crow between midnight and 3 a.m. That sounds miserable. But it's already nighttime, post-Passover feast, and soon this watch of the night that the Romans called cock crow, they were probably ticked off by it as well. So they referred the whole night watch as, this is when those stinking roosters crow all the time. That's coming up so soon. That's how soon it would be when proud Peter would deny Jesus, having just declared himself to be so strong. But fear not, beloved. Everything is happening according to God's plan. Our first point, pride before the stumble. Second, verses 36 through 46, a humble vigil. Here, this is what we see with Jesus, of course. He and the eleven arrive to the Mount of Olives, and there's where we find the Garden of Gethsemane. It's almost certainly on the western bank of the Mount of Olives, and therefore overlooking the Temple Mount. Jesus, the rabbi, was going to lead his eleven disciples in a time of prayer and watching. Now, for some reason, this is not picked up on in many of the commentaries, but I think we should pick up on this. This was expected during the Passover. Recall what we read earlier from Exodus 12, that it was a night where you would not only eat in haste with your staff in your hand, your belt around your waist, but you would observe a night of watching, a night of praying. For after all, during that original Passover event, what were they doing throughout the night? They're waiting for the moment when they will be released from bondage to go rushing out of Egypt, to leave Egypt in their dust. They weren't supposed to go to sleep because if they did, they might be too groggy and slow getting out the door in the morning. They were to spend it in watching and in praying in great hope and joy. 
Exodus 12, verse 42, which we read just a little bit ago. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. But whereas the Passover was to be characterized by joyful anticipation of that morning of salvation in the Jewish households, there was one inside those households that wouldn't be that happy. The sacrificial lamb certainly was not experiencing much joy after all. Similarly, we read here of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is found to be sorrowful and troubled. But he responds not with pride before the coming crisis and trial, but he responds by praying and by watching. He pleads with his disciples to join him in this vigil, but they quickly fall asleep even though he had just told them that they would spiritually stumble, even though he was plainly distraught, they weren't really concerned at all, were they? So they were doubly negligent. They neglected the command of Exodus 12 to observe a night of watching according to Passover ritual, and they ignored the exhortation of Jesus to watch and pray with him before the coming crisis. The sin of the disciples. It's obvious. Thankfully, it was sin that Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to address. Their sloth here, the disciples, has the effect of leaving Jesus all alone. He's already being abandoned. The strike of the Lord is arriving. Surely this realization contributes to his great sorrow and his anguish. I'm reminded here of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It is a story of good versus evil. It is a story in which evil is attacked and undone. The hero of the story, Frodo Baggins, finds himself increasingly alone as he undertakes the victory. He is left to himself. It is a burden that only he could carry. Such is the case here with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We should note before moving on the juxtaposition that occurs here. Whereas Peter declared himself to be strong, yet falls asleep, Jesus humbly prays to the Father. Whereas Peter would sinfully deny Jesus three times, Jesus humbly prays to the Father three times so that he would not sin. Peter was blind to his own sin and weakness. Jesus, who had no sin, was aware that sin was a real enemy, and it lurked. And so he responded by devoting himself to the Father in prayer and watching, recommitting himself to a path of obedience. Our second point. Now, Let's move on into some notes of application. Let's begin by noting here the example of Jesus, humbly watching and humbly praying. Notice how the God-given ritual of watching and praying at Passover was not some mere formality. 
Jesus took it seriously. He observed the ritual both externally and internally. You and I can err in one of two different directions. Some of us think that rituals aren't really that important. So we dispense with the externals. We think externals are bad. Let's get away from those. It's only the heart that matters. Others among us are going to struggle with the opposite extreme. To say, hey, I've got my rituals. I'm doing my thing. But we forget the heart of the matter. We are both body and soul. Externals and internals matter. We see that here so clearly with Jesus. It's neither it's not either or, it is both and. Observe as well how Jesus was vigilant in his self-defense against sin. As Messiah prepared to receive the strike of God's wrath, he knew that this would lead to temptation. And so he steeled himself in humble prayer. Now, if there's anyone who could have relied upon his own strength, it was Jesus. But he didn't. He went to his Father. He prayed. He was aware of what was coming upon him. And so he sought the strength that comes from heaven. How convicting this should be for us, beloved. His example for us. Like the apostles we are so often quite confident in ourselves. We can do it. Or perhaps we're just oblivious of ourselves. And we walk right into temptation, not even recognizing it's coming our way, when it should be just obvious, like a flashing road sign saying, danger, danger. We go walking right in. But Jesus is aware and he seeks the strength that comes from God. He's vigilant against sin. Beloved, may we also watch and pray that we may not enter into the bondage and grips of temptation. Notice as well here the contents of Jesus' prayer. Surely his three prayers were much longer than what Matthew records. He gives you the Cliff's Notes version, basically. But Matthew does capture for us the essence of his prayer. Three times, Jesus acknowledges the upcoming trial. He will drink the cup of God's wrath. Not only does he name the trial, but he acknowledges his own preference that he not drink that cup. Finally, he commits himself ultimately to whatever the Father wills. Christ's ultimate preference was to obey rather than to protect himself and to lead his best life now. The Messiah submits perfectly to the divine will. His prayer is honest, but it is submissive. Now, beloved, it's appropriate for you to bring all of your petitions to the Lord. To be honest. To express your trials. To articulate those because your Father does care. He does love you. He wants to hear you speak to Him. To come to Him. 
and to pray to him and ask him that you might be spared. However, with Christ is always qualified if it be your will. We seek to be obedient rather than to find comfort in this life. And if God does appoint trials for us, well, we can always then trust if it's His will that we go through those trials rather than around them, we can trust that it is always for His glory and for our good. Now, within the prayer that Jesus offers, commentators are agreed that there is an echo of the Lord's prayer here. Notice how Jesus addresses God as His Father. Notice what he says, Thy will be done. He also offers the same prayer three times. Not only did this correspond to Peter's three denials, but the early church had a certain practice of praying the Lord's Prayer three times per day. At morning prayer, at noon prayer, and at evening prayer. By taking the time to note that Jesus adapted the Lord's Prayer and prayed it three times, Matthew may have been encouraging the early church in that regular use of the Lord's Prayer. They were being Christ-like as they did it. And not only could they pray it verbatim, which was a common practice for them, but they could also adapt its words and apply it to their various trials of life, just like Jesus did. So, if you've not yet made it a regular practice to recite the Lord's Prayer in your daily life, I would encourage you to do so. On one hand, it is an act of obedience. For the Lord Jesus said in Luke 11, When you pray, say this. When we pray the very words of Scripture, we are reminding ourselves that God's Word is a complete treasure for us. When we take upon our lips the inspired words of the Spirit, we are being filled with the Spirit. So, beloved, may we be quick to recite the Lord's Prayer and make it an act not only of external obedience, but of internal as well. But in addition to reciting it, perhaps even three times a day, let us also use it as Christ uses it, as a rubric for our own prayers. Notice what he does. He refers back to that Lord's Prayer, but then he applies it to his situation. He expounds upon it. He elaborates on it to apply it to his own distinct moments in that crisis. And so, perhaps you structure a prayer like that, beginning by saying, Our Father who art in heaven. And then taking a moment to praise our Heavenly Father for who He is and how transcendent He is. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. He is good. And then saying, Hallowed be Thy name. And then taking a moment to ask God to glorify Himself, to spread His name and His fame across the world. And proceeding then through the Lord's Prayer by reciting a line and then expounding upon it as you are so moved by the Holy Spirit. Beloved Christian, here as the narrative slows down, as we behold Jesus approaching the cross, we must learn from that example 
to watch and to pray. For recall, our Savior warned us in Matthew chapter 10, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And in Matthew 16, he instructed us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Beloved, let us follow him. Let us learn from his example. Let us be vigilant against sin by watching and praying and finding thereby strength from our God in heaven. Our first point of application. Let's learn from his example to watch and to pray. Second and finally, let us see in Christ our substitutes. While there are some who refuse to look to Jesus as a moral example, there are also others who reduce Jesus to just a mere moral example. But, Christian, he is primarily your Savior, not primarily your moral example. For if he's not first your Savior then you cannot follow him on that path of the cross. If he is not first your substitute, then no matter what you do in terms of watching and praying, it is for naught. So, as we come to this text and see these things, we must recognize how clearly it is presenting Jesus to us as our substitutes. For you have not been vigilant against your sin, and you will fall short today and tomorrow in that task. You have failed to watch and pray, and that will still plague you until you go to glory. You have not and will not submit yourself perfectly to the will of your Father, and so you will sin. And according to justice, you would incur wrath. You have relied upon your own strength. You've been prideful like Peter was. You have preferred your creature comforts, things like sleep, rather than watching and praying in diligence against sin. Like the disciples, you can gather around the Lord's table and then immediately, maybe in the next moment, certainly the next day, sin against the Lord. Beloved, we do not need a mere moral example to imitate. We need a Savior to substitute Himself for us. And again, praise God, for that is exactly what we see here in our text. Jesus walking that lonely path. Even though His disciples sinfully abandoned Him, He nevertheless was obeying for them, and for you, and for you. He prayed to the Father, Thy will be done. Not my will, but yours. And that obedience was not for Himself. The Eternal Son became Messiah. He did not need to. The eternal Son voluntarily became a man. He had to then learn obedience 
to accomplish your salvation. In His divinity, the Son had no need to be obedient. He is Almighty God after all. But as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humbling Himself for the disciples, even as He heard them sinfully snoring off in the distance, Jesus was submitting Himself perfectly to the Father's will. The only man ever since creation to be completely aligned to God's commands. Jesus Christ, your Messiah, did that. Consider how Hebrews 5, which we read earlier in our service, reflects upon this glorious reality. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, that means being made glorious, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Beloved, hear this message this morning. Jesus Christ is the great substitute for sinners. And one part of that substitution is that he was obedient for you. Obedient where you sinned and failed. He kept the law of God perfectly as your substitute, as your representative. But there's more than that, amazingly, in the work of Christ's substitutionary work. Not only did he need to positively obey the commands of God, but he also became our substitute by receiving the punishment that you and I deserve. This is because of our sins. Recall what he said when he quoted from Zechariah the prophet. Jesus quotes the, Lord, the word of the Lord, I will strike the shepherd. That's God speaking. He would do it. He would strike Messiah. He would strike the great king. Did he deserve to be struck? No. He has been obedient to the will of God. The son did not need to be struck for his own sins. So why was he struck? Because your rebellion, your insurrection was cast upon Jesus. The strike that you deserve, he took. At Calvary. Beloved, behold the love of Jesus. Behold his mercy and his grace. Behold the love of God found in the face of the Son, a God who's willing to receive his own strike that you might be spared. We see this as well in our text. As we read about Jesus speaking about drinking that cup. It was a cup that he did not, in his humanity, desire. No one wants to bear the wrath of God. However, he had a greater desire. And that was to obey his Father. 
And so he did willingly drink that. And we must understand that that cup is an Old Testament metaphor regularly used to speak about the wrath of God. And Jesus Christ drank it to the dregs. Every bit of it taken down. Which means that for you and for me, who are trusting in Jesus this day, there is no more wrath to drink. Instead, what you find in place of a cup of wrath is a Savior who extends to you a cup of the new covenant in his blood and calls it a cup of blessing. And so, beloved Christian, understand this day that your humble Savior, the one who watched and who prayed, is more than a moral example for you. He is that. He also became your substitute, that you might this day have every assurance that you will spend eternity with God in the new creation because your Savior stepped into the gap for you. He obeyed the law for you, which you have not done. He carried your sins for you, that you might not be struck. And in place of that cup of wrath, He extends to you a cup of joy and celebration, a cup of blessing, that you might find in Christ a God who is favorable toward you, rather than one who is just in condemning you for your sins. Praise be to Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.